0: Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today in worship. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free Church. If you are new, please come up and say hi afterward. I'd love to get to know you. And we are in the middle of a series right now in the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to pull them out and open up to the book of Acts. We're going to continue in chapter four today. Uh, But before we do that, I want to let you know about a new resource that's available to you that you may want to take advantage of. This is a, called a filament Bible journal, and it is in the New Living Translation, the translation that I use to preach with here. And this is a Bible that has the scripture on one side of the page and is open for notes on the other side of the page. So it is a really cool resource. I would have promoted this at the beginning of the series, except it wasn't released yet. So this just came out. You can get these now. They're $6 each, and we actually have a bunch of them in our library out these doors. If you would like to pick one up easily, or you can get them online, but if you want, they're available here for six bucks. You can get this and follow along with us. We have a lot of acts left to go through. So if this would be helpful for you as we work through the book together, I would encourage you to pick this up. And this is something that you'll hold on to for years to come. It'll have all of your notes from the Acts series in it. So that's available for you if you want it now. To get us started today, a lot of times I like to start off with some kind of a story or an illustration, and this week I learned about a really interesting case in Michigan, small town Michigan. There were two people, Jerry and Marge Selby, and Jerry and Marge were high school sweethearts. They got married. They started a convenience store together. They ran that for many, many years until one day they were both in their 60s, and they decided, hey, we need to retire and just take it easy. And we've earned enough money. We don't need any more. We're just going to kind of relax and enjoy this retired life with our friends and our family. And that's what they did. Now, Jerry had always been really good with numbers. And so he was the one that handled the books in the store and made sure everything was good accounting wise. And one day after he and Marge retired, he was walking through a store and he happened to notice a brochure for a new game from the Michigan Lottery. Now I've never played the lottery and I I don't intend to start now, but Jerry happened to notice being kind of a keen mind for numbers that this game had an unusual set of rules that could end up with some very good odds. If you were to play this game, he did some quick and dirty math and he discovered that under certain conditions, if you bought these lottery tickets, you actually had a better chance of winning than losing. If you bought enough of them, he figured that if you bought $1,100 worth of lottery tickets, that your payout would likely be $1,900, and that's a pretty good return. So unlike a game where it's normal for you to lose and exceptional for you to win under certain, certain circumstances, Jerry figured out that with this game, it was more likely for you to win than lose if you bought enough tickets at the right time. And the way it worked was there was what was called a roll down. So at a certain point, if the, if a winner was not determined at a certain round in this game, then at the next round, all of the big prizes rolled down to a lower tier of winners, which meant your odds of winning those prizes increased dramatically. But you could still go buy tickets. So <clears throat> Jerry kept this information to himself because he wasn't 100% sure if it would work yet. And he took $3,600. Without telling his wife, good idea, right? This is not an illustration of like, do as I say. This is just an illustration. True story, though. Jerry takes $3,600 and he buys lottery tickets after the roll down is announced. And he comes away with $6,300. Pretty good return on your investment. So he decides to do it again. Only this time with $8,000. Still hasn't told his wife. Marge is completely in the dark. Jerry takes $8,000 and buys lottery tickets after the roll down and walks away with almost $16,000. And at this point, he figures, well, I better tell Marge. So he lets her know. And I don't know what her initial reaction was. If there was any kind of like a, why did you do this without telling me? But the end result was her saying, I'm all in. They had found something really unique and really special. It was completely legal. There was nothing bad about this. It was in the rules of the game. It was just a a feature, or you might say a bug of the game that Jerry had discovered. And so he and Marge started playing this roll down game and making money. Well, as you can imagine, it was such a neat thing to them that they had discovered that they couldn't keep it to themselves. And so they told their family and they told their friends and they told their business associates and they actually ended up creating a corporation. So that all these people could pool their money, they could play the lottery, and then they would split the winnings based on how much they put in. They created quite a little enterprise for themselves. And they let, they let all kinds of people in. They had farmers, they had accountants, they had bank managers, they had politicians, they had police officers, they had all kinds of people participating in this corporation that would go play the Michigan lottery, and they made a lot of money. The next time they played after they had told everybody about it, they they had $515,000 to invest in the lottery. And so they put it all on lottery tickets. I mean, everybody had pooled all of their spare money to make this happen. They bought over half a million dollars worth of lottery tickets. And do you know what happened? They won $853,000. It paid off. Some of you thought it was going to go south, but it didn't. It worked. And eventually they told enough people that the Michigan lottery found out and they canceled the game. Isn't that sad? But then someone in their club, because they had told so many people, they just couldn't keep this to themselves. They told so many people, someone discovered that there was a similar game in Massachusetts. So they fired up the corporation again. And four times a year, Jerry and Marge would take a road trip to Massachusetts where they would buy millions of dollars of lottery tickets a year. And they always won. And after doing this for almost a decade, they ended up making several million dollars for not only them, but for all the people that participated in this with them, because they just couldn't keep it to themselves. And that's the thing with something that's so amazing that could change your life. It could transform your life. And I'm not trying to prop money up as this amazing thing. It's just an illustration. But you think about it for Jerry and Marge, they went from being comfortable retirees to incredibly wealthy retirees, putting all their grandkids through college, helping all of their children pay off their houses, doing all this stuff. And the people they helped did the same kind of thing. When you uncover something so life changing and so transforming for you, it's really hard to keep it to yourselves. And that's what makes it so interesting and sad that for those of us who have trusted in Jesus and who would readily say, man, Jesus has changed my life. I would be a different person today if it weren't for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it weren't for the work that he's done in my life, the Holy Spirit, there's just the transformation that happens when you're a follower of Jesus and your desires are different and and you have a different hope and, and redemption and healing and forgiveness. And yet so often, don't we keep that to ourselves? The way it kind of works is I have my work life and I have my church life and I have my home life and I have my school life and I have these different sections of my life. They're almost like different boxes I have all these different boxes and those boxes don't always touch. And so I've got my box for Jesus and I've got my box for church and for faith. And yeah, it's this amazing thing that's transformed my life personally, but that was a while ago. And now I kind of eh, it's just sort of that thing that I, it's one of my attributes. You know, it's on my Facebook profile. You know, I'm an engineer, and I like to run marathons, and I, I dabble in cars in my spare time, and I'm a Christian. And it's just one of those extra attributes that gets added to us. But if you've been following us for the last year, we've talked a lot about the fact that this is supposed to be something that infuses every aspect of our lives. It's not just for Sunday. It's for Monday through Saturday as well. Jesus and the gospel message is supposed to be a part of everything we do, including Letting other people know about the joy that we have found in Christ, and instead of it being this sort of thing that's on the side in our life, it's supposed to be front and center to the point where we can't keep it to ourselves, and we can't stop telling people about Jesus, and I know that can be difficult, and I know that can be scary sometimes, and it can bring anxiety, and it can cause concern for us, but I want to show you an example today from Scripture from Acts where we see two people who just can't stop telling others about Jesus. And then I want to take a moment to learn what can we do to have that same kind of passion, that same kind of boldness in our lives. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Acts chapter four. Let me give you a little background here. We've been studying the book of Acts in the last couple of weeks. We have seen the story of a man who was born without the use of his legs. He, he begged at the temple for decades. People knew who he was. And Peter and John come by one day and the man asks them for money. And Peter says, I don't have any money for you, but what I have, I'll give you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. And he reaches down and he pulls the man up and his legs strengthen his ankles and his feet straighten out and strengthen. And he can walk and he can jump and he can run. And he's so happy. And all these hundreds of people around see this and they go, we know this guy. He's been there for years doing this. We know he can't walk. This is not a trick. This is an actual real life miracle right in front of us. There must be something to this. And so they huddle around Peter and John, and Peter takes advantage of that opportunity to tell them about Jesus Christ and to say this healing didn't happen because of us. This happened because of faith in Jesus. And let's talk about who Jesus is. The man that some of you cried, crucify him. That man is God, and he died for our sins. And he is the reason this man can walk again. And we want you to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ for a completely changed life. And that brings us kind of to where we are today. Now, Peter has given that message. A lot of people are believing that message. And, and then we're going to get into some trouble and we're going to experience some opposition to sharing about Jesus. Um, We've got a group in particular that is really opposed to Jesus and his teaching, and they're going to step in and they're going to try to silence Peter and John. Let's see what they say. Luke records this for us in Acts chapter four, verse one. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. Sadducees. That's an important word to remember. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus, there is a resurrection of the dead. Let me pause for a minute and talk about the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group of people that were kind of like a political organization. Only in ancient Judaism, your politics, your government, and your civil um, leadership were all sort of intertwined. It was all connected. So the Sadducees were a theological, religious, distinct group. But they were also kind of a political group, and they happened to be the one that had the most power at this point in time. Most of the high priests were Sadducees, and many of them were family with family members with each other. Um, The Sadducees ran the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of like a Senate, a body of leaders that would come together and vote on things. Again, many from the same families, important key families. The Sadducees had a variety of beliefs. I'll, I'll share a couple of them with you, but probably their most prominent belief was in the value of money. They loved money. We know this archaeologically. If you go back, some of the most opulent homes in ancient Israel were of the Sadducees. They managed to use religion to make themselves very, very wealthy. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus had such a problem with them. He called them wicked. He called them adulterous. At times, he went into the temple and drove them out of the temple. So he, he had a big problem with people who, whose primary usage of religion was not to help people grow closer with God, but just to make more money. And that's a lot of what the Sadducees did. They were very good at it. But the Sadducees also had some unique theological beliefs. And I think you could call it annihilationist deism. Essentially, the Sadducees believe that there is no afterlife. After this life, your soul is no more. It is annihilated. And there's no heaven and there's no hell. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. No heaven, no hell. This life is all there is. They did believe in God, but they were deists when it comes to God. So God created the world and he did give us the Torah to live by. And we're supposed to follow that. But God is not involved in our lives really other than that. There's no regular presence or involvement of God in our lives. And so you just kind of take the Torah and you apply that and you force other people to live by that. And as far as the Sadducees were concerned, especially the the leadership in the Sadducees, it was you leverage this as much as possible to make as much money as possible to enjoy life as much as possible now, because there ain't nothing coming after this. And if you think about it, that kind of makes sense. If there's no judgment. If there's no heaven, if there's no hell, if there's no punishment in the future for abusing the system just to gain your own personal wealth, even though it hurts your fellow people, then why not live for today? Why not utilize the religious system to kind of better your own life and enrich your own life and not actually help the people that you're supposed to be helping? That was kind of the Sadducees mindset. Jesus was completely opposed to this, and one of the key areas where this friction point heats up is around the resurrection because Jesus says there is a heaven, there is a hell, and you're going to go to one of those two places, and there is a life after this. There's a resurrection of the dead. There is an afterlife, you might say, or a continuation of your life where there will be judgment. That's not good news if you're a Sadducee. That kind of goes against their principles and how they live. So they did not like him very much. John the Baptist, by the way, called these people a brood of vipers. And Jesus said they were wicked and adulterous. So there's a feud going on between the Sadducees and Jesus and his disciples. There also, by the way, was a feud between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Pharisees end up winning in the end sometime after this. But right now, the Sadducees are still in charge, and they decide that they are going to clamp down on Peter and John. Because they thought they had dealt with this Jesus guy. But now the whole movement just seems to be growing. Remember just a, a few days ago, I think it was or, or a couple days ago, 3,000 people joined the church in Jerusalem. That's a big problem in a, in a city of perhaps 80 to 100,000 people in Jerusalem to suddenly have 3,000 people join this new movement of this thing that you thought you had squashed. There's a big problem on their hands. So what are they going to do about it? Well, they approach Peter and John and in verse three, it says they arrested them. Since it was already evening, they put them in jail until the morning, but many of the people who heard their message believed it. So the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. And this specifically says the men who believed, which means they're not even counting how many women and teenagers and children trusted in Jesus. So the church now might be 10,000, 15,000 people. We don't know. They're in Jerusalem. That's a big problem. If your whole life and your whole lifestyle is built around this religious system that you have devised that that ties in with your belief system. And now Jesus's followers are teaching against that. You can see why they're so against this. So the next day, verse five, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Anas, the high priest, was there along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. Other relatives of the high priest were there as a part of this council, this tribunal. It's a family affair. It's a family business. A little mafia-like here. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? In other words, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are doing this, causing this commotion? Um, and and they, uh, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people. Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. You'll notice if you've been paying attention the last couple weeks that that has been kind of a theme. Peter kind of throwing it back at them and saying, this is the very man that you crucified not that long ago, and now it is his resurrection and his power and faith in him that is leading to all of this change that you are seeing. He goes on verse 11 for Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. People don't usually speak to the Sanhedrin and the high priest and the Sadducees this way. These are powerful people, but Peter and John are boldness. And they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men? They asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. So they already have this sense that what happened there at the temple has spread all over the place and people know about the healing of this guy and they're very, very concerned What can we do about it, though? Because they've walked by him every day, too. They've walked by, and I don't know if they've dropped some coins in his cup or if they've done anything to help him at all or didn't even give him the time of day. But they all know as temple leaders who walk through here every single day, they know this man could not use his legs for decades. And now this is a genuine miracle. And I would think if I were in their shoes, I'd be like, maybe there's something to this. You know, if I know there's a miracle right in front of me, maybe there is something to this. But instead, they say, To keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus name again. So we're going to ignore the fact that we just saw a genuine bona fide miracle that everybody's talking about. All we care about is let's keep them from talking about Jesus anymore. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than Jesus? Him, we cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard the council then threatened them further, probably with physical harm, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot for everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign. Everyone except for the Sadducees, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. That's chapter four. And if I were to pick two key verses out of chapter four, it would be 19 and 20. Let me give you those again. Peter and John replied, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. You know, that's how a lot of people feel after they experience the freedom that comes from trusting in Jesus for the first time. And maybe you did as well, especially if you came to Jesus later in life and experienced that fresh excitement of of just the difference that he makes and the, the hope that you have and the different priorities that you have, the desires that change. It's not like life instantly becomes perfect, but it definitely becomes better and it can keep getting better over time as you surrender more of your life to his work and his will and the Holy Spirit works in your life. And we have that excitement and that passion and that energy. And that's why so often what I see is people who are more recent people who have trusted in Jesus, those are the ones that tend to have the most excitement and boldness and energy to tell other people about him, and they don't always get it 100% right. And their theology isn't always perfect yet, but they're out there telling people because, man, this Jesus guy, he is great, and he's changed my life. I want other people to know it. I want them to experience it, and then something happens over time. It's kind of ironic, actually, because we learn more and more, and yet we become more and more hesitant to talk about Jesus with people who don't know him. We know more and we learn more, and then we become more anxious and scared because we don't feel like we know enough sometimes, or we're, we're concerned it will be awkward. We have some kind of anxiety, and so we don't share our faith with Jesus as much as we used to anymore. Isn't that the truth? We see it over and over again. It's, it's a, a feature in my life as well. It's a constant struggle of man. It was exciting, and then it sort of wanes over time. It becomes just another aspect of my life. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe in the gospel. That one time, yeah, I still go to church. I'm still involved in that, but does he make enough of a difference in my life that I can't stop telling people about him like Peter and John? Even if you threaten me with with physical injury, even if you tell me to never speak of Jesus again, I'm sorry. I'm going to obey God and not people. I'm going to obey God and not my feelings. I'm going to obey God and not fear. I have to keep telling people about Jesus. That was how Peter and John lived, and I want to help us Get back there. I want us to get back to that point where we have that fresh excitement in what Jesus does in our life to the point where we can't keep it inside to the point where there aren't separate boxes for work and church and school and life that don't touch each other to the point where Jesus is a part of everything that we do. And we're always looking for those opportunities to let people know, hey, he has made such a difference in my life. Let me tell you what he's done for me. I want us to be like Peter and John. We just can't stop telling people about Jesus. So the question then is, how do we do that? What I want to do today in the time we have left is give you six things that you can do to get back there if you haven't been there for a while. So admittedly, this is for a subset of you. This is for people that have trusted in Jesus. And maybe you haven't. And there'll be lots here for you as well. But primarily, this is for people that have trusted trusted in Jesus. And maybe at one time, we're passionate about sharing their faith. And for a while now, you have recognized, and maybe even there's been some conviction on you of, boy, I really have not shared my faith with someone in a long time. Like it's been weeks, months, years since I last did that. How do we get back there? How do we get back to obeying God instead of all those other things that distract us from doing what God wants us to do? The gospel Did not come to you. The good news about Jesus did not come to you to end with you. It came to you so you could pass it on to other people. How do we do that? Six things if you want to write them down. The first thing is start with prayer. Start with prayer. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy. And by the way, I'm going to read a lot of verses here. We're not going to put them all up on the screen. So if you want to, you can write these down and read them later. But I'll share them with you as we go. Start with prayer. Paul says, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf. Give thanks for them. Pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. Then he says, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. He starts with prayer for other people and then says, this is good because God wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. The idea here is that we are praying for other people who may not be people we even care for. He says kings and those in authority. How often do you really love the people that are in authority over you? You know, or are you more likely to go? I don't like the way they do that. I don't like the way they do that I saw that, that video that looked terrible. We don't always care for the people that are in authority over us. And yet Paul is saying, I want you to pray for them because God wants everyone. Yes, everyone. Yes. Even that ruler, that leader that you don't care for. He wants all of them to be saved and understand the truth. And so we should pray. We should start with prayer for other people. You know, there are probably people in your life right now that you know of that are what um, we would phrase in a missiological term as a person of peace. Someone who may not know Jesus yet, but they're open to spiritual conversations and there's a need in their life. And maybe they're starting to recognize it. They're not hostile. They're not closing the door to that. There are probably people in your life, whether they're neighbors or coworkers or classmates or friends, whatever it is. That are individuals that you probably could have a gospel conversation with, and they would be open open to listening. And we'll talk more about how to do that in a little bit. But right off the bat, what you start with is praying for them. And maybe you just make a list. Here are three people in my life that I'm going to pray for every day. I'm going to pray that God will give me opportunities because I know that God wants them to understand the truth. So that they can be saved and become a part of his family. And I'm going to pray and ask God to arrange opportunities for me to talk with them and just see what he does. Start with prayer. Number two, you need to understand the gospel. Now, you don't need to understand all the theological nuances of this. And this is what always trips people up. Because if you don't have a seminary degree, or even if you do, you still feel like, man, I don't know enough to answer every question. I don't understand, and it's kind of an ironic thing because you have to understand the gospel to a certain level to believe in the gospel and become a follower of Jesus. But then the farther you get away from that, the less equipped you feel to tell other people about that thing that you believed in and was explained to you and that you trust in that changed your life. And so it's sort of paradoxical in a way that that we're afraid to tell people about the thing that we believed ourselves and at least understood ourselves enough to trust in Jesus. And the reality is you don't have to know everything. You don't have to know all the theological terms. You don't have to know all. Of, I mean, it helps to, to learn more about those things. It certainly helps, but you don't have to to start talking with other people. Let me tell you what Paul said about the good news of Jesus. He said in 1 Corinthians 15, I want to remind you, dear brothers and sisters of the good news I preached to you before you welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that, that saves you. If you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important. This is the of all the things Paul taught them. He taught them a lot. This is the most important thing. And what also had been passed on to me, Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. That's the the first important point of the gospel. Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life and he died, not just to die, but he died for our sins to be the sacrifice for our sins. And the scriptures had said it. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that all came true. Verse four, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said, and then he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. See, Paul is making the point that this is verifiable. Jesus lived and he died for our sins and he rose again from the dead. And there are still hundreds of people alive at this point that you can go talk to and they will say, yeah, I saw him. And yes, he really did die. And yep, I saw him afterward, too. And it's amazing. And so it was verifiable. Paul is saying, this is the core of what we believe. Yeah, there's a lot of other teaching that we can really dig into and it's fun to dive into, but let's keep the main thing. The main thing I passed on to you. What was most important. It goes back to our discussion of the buckets of belief and the undivided mindset, that, that dogma, that core of what we believe, the gospel message. That's the most important thing. And at its core, it's a relatively simple message. And when you dive into the fringes of it, no one on this earth has ever fully understood it because it is beyond our comprehension all of the ways God plays it out. But if you understand that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose from the dead, and that if you put your trust in him and believe in him to save you and nothing you can do, that's what makes you a follower of Jesus. That's when God puts his Holy Spirit inside of you and starts to do a work of transformation in your life. We call sanctification, helping you to grow more and more like him. You don't need to know a lot to be able to share the basics of the gospel with someone and introduce them to faith in Jesus. And I'll say this as well. When you're in a conversation like that with someone and they ask you a question and you don't know the answer inside, not out loud because it'd be weird, but inside just give a little hooray. That's awesome. It is a good thing if they ask you a question and you don't know the answer. You know why? Not because it proves that you didn't know enough. It's because then you get to say, you know, I don't know, but I'm going to look into that. Why don't we get together again and talk about this? And I'll, I'll tell you what I've found out. That is the best way that, that that can turn out of. Let's keep this conversation going. If they ask you a question and stump you, that's not a cause for fear or panic. That's a cause for celebration, because it means there is a really good reason for us to make sure we get back together again and keep talking about this. So don't feel like you have to know it all, but do understand the basics of the gospel. Number three, listen well, listen well. You know, I think one of the most damaging things that has happened for sharing our faith in the last few decades has been what I call the elevator pitch gospel method. And that is the idea that you go to several weeks of training and you memorize some kind of script and that script has you sharing the gospel in two or five or ten minute increments or something like that. And that now to you is what sharing your faith is looks like it's this method that you have learned. And and maybe not everyone has gone through that. I've been through many of them, and some good comes out of those. Don't get me wrong. There are people that have trusted Jesus because of those. But the byproduct of that has often been that we forget about the relational aspect of sharing our faith, and we focus more on the quick pitch, the quick sale of evangelism. And we get this idea that, well, what I really need to do is try to get them to a gospel conversation as quickly as possible, and then close the deal. What's it going to take for you to give your life to Jesus today? What's it going to take for you to go ahead and say that prayer with me today? And that mindset around evangelism, I think in many ways has hurt us and many people who who don't naturally do that well to, to misunderstand that. That's not all what sharing the gospel is about. A lot of times it's about living a certain way so that people can see the way you live so that you can have conversations with them about why you live differently than everybody else. That's a lot of what it is, and a big part of that comes down to listening. Well, a lot of people who get really into evangelism, they're very good at talking. They're very good. And I'm, I'm that way. I'm very good at, at speaking at talking, you know, and I can talk about all the gospel stuff and the theological stuff. But at the end of the day, that's not what the person sitting on the other side of the table really cares about. They need to know that you care about them as a person. There's a great book called Share Jesus Without Fear by a guy named William Faye. If you want to look this up, it's my favorite book on evangelism. It's very accessible. It's not like my favorite deep book on evangelism, but Shared Jesus Without Fear is a great introduction to evangelism. And William Faye introduces these six questions that you can ask that help you to guide a gospel conversation in a way that cares about what the other person has to say. That actually gets their input without getting sidetracked along the way. It's an excellent resource, um, and and I agree with 99% of what's in the book, so that's my disclaimer. But it it is a fantastic way to make sure that you are listening well to people and not just trying to give some kind of a gospel pitch. Number four, earn the right to be heard. Earn the right to be heard. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came, and he ministered, and he cared, and he healed He spent a lot of time caring for people, and then he told them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to repent of your sins. I want you to turn to God, but he first cared for the people. He healed the sick. He healed the lame. He healed the blind. He took care of people. He showed compassion to them that many of them had never experienced that way before, and through that, he earned the right to be heard. That's what Peter and John did when they cared for this man who was at the temple steps, who was sitting there for years begging And they showed him compassion and care. They didn't just heal him. They wanted to have a relationship with him. They said, hey, look at us. We want to talk with you. We don't want to just kind of pass you on by. We want to engage with you. And then they facilitate this healing. And they earned the right for hundreds of people to listen to what they had to say. Now, you may not speak to hundreds of people, and that's fine. You may just speak to one. But it's a good idea to earn the right to communicate to them a message that could change their life. Sometimes we have this idea that that we meet somebody for the first time, and, and a true evangelist, it's like, how quickly can you get to that gospel presentation, and how quickly can you close that deal? And we have to understand the fact that what we're really saying is, all right, in the next 10 minutes, I think you should abandon everything you've believed before, believe what I believe, and, and then I can say that I've checked that box and done a good job of sharing the gospel with you. When the reality is, this is a very big deal. And a lot of people need to see the difference in your life before they can say, I want that in my life. You know, there was a survey done a while back of Christians that found that on average, someone needed to hear the gospel message from another person more than seven times, not the same person, but different people more than seven times before they believed it. Because you've got to see that there's something to this. You've got to see that this is real, that this actually makes a difference in your life. It's not just this thing you're telling me, but then you go do something different. This is not hypocrisy. And believe me, there are lots of Christians that will make you think of hypocrisy or people who call themselves Christians, but they've got to see, hey, there's something to this. You live differently. You treat me differently. You have compassion. You have care. And that is very different for me. First Peter three has a great section on this. Uh, This is the same Peter who is writing later. And he says, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other, be tender hearted. Keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. And he says all these things about how you're supposed to live a good life. Turn away from evil. Do good. Go out and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. Um, Always do good. Who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? So he says all of this. And then he says in verse 15, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But. Do this in a gentle and respectful way. So we're supposed to live life in a certain way, doing good all the time so that at different times, people are going to look at us and go, your life is different and you have an answer for the hope that you have. But be gentle and respectful, not combative, not argumentative. You don't need to try to convince them. You just share. Here's the reason for the hope that I have and see what that does. You live your life a certain way so that you're earning the right to be heard for the reason that you live your life a certain way and do good and are compassionate. Number five, tell stories. Tell stories. The gospel came to you through stories. The story of Jesus Christ, how he came, how he lived, how he died. The story of the apostles in acts that we're studying now, how they went around telling people all about Jesus. These are stories that come to us that help us to understand these truths that God has for us. And you have a story as well. If you've trusted in Jesus, you have stories of how you first trusted in Jesus. You have stories of how he's carried you through difficult times, and there are opportunities that you have in conversations where you can share a story about how Jesus has made a difference, or you can just continue on with the small talk and not bring up Jesus at all. Those are our options. We have amazing stories to tell about how Jesus has made a huge difference in our life, how Jesus is the difference in our life. Don't be afraid to tell those stories. Whether it's the story of when you first trusted in Christ, or it's the story of how he's done something amazing in your life after that, don't leave Jesus out of those stories. I mean, that's what Peter and John are saying. We can't stop telling everyone about what we've seen and heard. They had stories to share about what Jesus did and what they saw. And they could not stop sharing those stories. These are not theological outlines. This is not systematic theology. This is not seminary degree stuff. Remember, even the Sadducees and the leaders in the temple said these men are so bold, yet they have no formal religious training. That was the apostles They had no formal religious training. They were telling stories about what they saw that Jesus did what they saw that God did. Don't be afraid to share your stories. Number six. Be patient and trusting. Be patient and trusting. Sometimes when we share our faith with someone, if they don't leave there believing what we believe, we can feel like a failure as if it was all on us, as if it was my responsibility to somehow convince them of what they need to do when the reality is that's not how it works. And that's not how the Bible says it works. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose and both will be rewarded for their own work for we are both God's workers and you are God's field. Sometimes you're going to plant a seed and sometimes you're going to water a seed and sometimes you're going to get to harvest the seed. And there are moments where you start talking about the gospel And the person, the good news about Jesus and the person you're talking with has already been prepped for that conversation, and you get to be the one to take them over the finish line. And that is awesome. And that is exciting. But there are other times where you're just the one planting the seed in lots of different ways. Maybe it's by living differently. Maybe it's by helping people, being compassionate, doing good for others, and just planting seeds, sharing about the hope that you have. Maybe you have the opportunity to take them all the way through through a relationship or maybe the Holy Spirit passes them off to someone else, but our job is not to worry about getting to do every aspect of that timeline. It's God that makes it grow. Our job is to be faithful in sharing and planting seeds and watering. That's what we get to do. So be patient and be trusting trust God with the outcome and don't think that it's all on you to make it happen. You know, Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, He told them there would be people who would reject them. In Luke chapter 10, he sends out his disciples in pairs, 72 of them, and he says, hey, by the way, you're going to go to some places where they're going to flat out reject you. And when they reject you, here's what I want you to do. Try to convince them. No. Here's what I want you to do. Stay there until they believe, because if you just give it enough time, they'll be. No. He says, I want you to go out in the streets, shake the dust off your feet and say, we leave you to your fate. Jesus is saying there are going to be some people who are just going to reject this message, and it's time to move on. That's why in in a missiological phrase, we use the term the person of peace. You're looking for someone who is a person of peace toward the good news about Jesus. They're, They're ready to hear and if they're not ready to hear. Love you. Happy to talk more in the future. But if you're just completely opposed to it, that is not on me to convince you. Don't take that burden on yourself. Jesus says that is not your burden. Disciples. When they reject your message, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me, Jesus Christ. And so you need to move on and go find someone who will listen, who will hear. Be patient and be trusting. There was a magician who a while ago, and I've shared this before, but it's been a few years, so this may still be fresh. There's a magician named Penn Jillette, who's an avowed atheist and speaks against God and, and has his you know, views for that, reasons for that. But he had a really interesting conversation um, that I got to watch where he talked about if he were a Christian, he encountered a a man, an elderly gentleman who was a strong believer and was super kind to him and just really gracious, you know, kind of earned the right to be heard. And afterward, it really made him think. And he said, you know what, man, if, if what these Christians say is true, and if they believe it's true, they should be telling everybody about this. I mean, they should, they should be sharing this all over the place. Why would they keep it to themselves? If they really believe that faith in Jesus Christ is going to help you have eternity with God and save you from your sin and keep you from going to hell, a terrible place for eternity. If they really believe that, why isn't every one of them out there telling more people about it? This atheist makes a very good point. We shouldn't be keeping it to ourselves. It needs to make a difference in our lives. It needs to show and then we show others how it can make a difference in their lives. And we're patient, and we trust in God with the outcome. What I want to invite you to do right now, if you would, is to just bow your head and close your eyes for a minute. Not to pray just yet, but to think. To give it some thought. Who would I put on that list? Do I have one, two, three people that that are like a person of peace in my life? Someone that may be ready to have that conversation, or at least talk about hope. Talk about why my life is different. My perspective is different. Not that It's perfect. But it sure is different than what it was before Jesus and commit to praying for those people this week. God, would you give me opportunities? Would you give me opportunities to share with them and help me to have the boldness in the moment to recognize it and to actually do it? Jesus, you have given us so much. You have given us new life in you. You have given us a way to be forgiven from our sin You have given us the opportunity to have a hope of a future and a home with you, and we don't deserve any of it, Lord. It's kind of like we've found the ultimate winning lottery game, and we don't want to keep it to ourselves. God, would you turn us into a people who who couldn't stop telling others about what you've done, just like Peter and like John, Lord. Give us that fresh excitement, God. I pray that, that every single one of us will make that commitment this week, this month, the rest of this year, God that we would tell others about you and and not be afraid to do so, even if we don't always have the answers, Lord, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, we have the opportunity now to take the Lord's Supper together, and I want to give you the chance to prepare your hearts for that. I also want to prepare you for how we do that here in case you're new and I see some new faces. How do we practice communion at First Free Church? Well, our servers are going to come forward and they're going to pass through the rows, these trays, and there's a stack of cups, two cups. The bottom cup is the bread. The top cup is the juice. And so you take a stack of cups, separate those two. And those are your elements for communion. If you need a gluten-free wafer, it's available in the middle of the tray. If you're at home right now, you may want to pause this video and you can gather the elements for yourself. Something to represent the body. Maybe bread or a cracker, something to represent the juice, some kind of um, liquid juice, water. The elements themselves are not what's important. What's important is what they represent, which is what Jesus did for us. We do this on a regular basis because Jesus commanded us to. He said, do this in remembrance of me. We're supposed to do this because otherwise we forget about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so that's what we're doing right now is remembering that sacrifice that Jesus made. And just to tie into our message today, let's not keep that to ourselves. This is a time of somber remembrance because we remember the death of our Savior, which is a very serious thing and the pain that he went through. But it's also a time of celebration because we all know he rose from the dead. He is living today. We serve a risen Savior. And so he represents us before God the Father today. And he looks down on us right now. And his Holy Spirit is in our hearts right now. And as we do this, it's a way of connecting with him and saying, I remember Jesus. I remember what you did for me. And I'm not going to keep that to myself. As we pass out these elements, this is a time to pray, a time to confess, a time to prepare your heart for communion. I'm going to read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is writing to explain how we do the Lord's Supper communion. And he says, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son to die for us on the cross to take away our sin, to give us his righteousness so that we can be made right with you. And part of your family and have eternity with you in front of us to look forward to. God, I pray that you would help us to live that out this week. Let it not just be a Sunday thing for us that we remember today, but I pray that tomorrow our life looks different because of what you've done for us. And I pray that others will see it and that we will spread your good news because of what you have given us, Lord. You've given us life. You've given us love. You've done all of this for us. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name.